This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Betsy Atkins is a corporate governance expert, having served on 27 boards covering multiple industries, including technology, financial services, healthcare, automotive manufacturing, logistics. She currently serves on company boards at Cognizant, Home Depot Supply, Green Realty, and Volvo Cars. She also founded Baja Corporation, where she built three early-stage funds and made early investments in companies like Yahoo and eBay. She's collected her best advice and stories in a book, Boardroom Doors, Lessons of a Corporate Director. She joins me now for a closer look. Betsy, no matter how much we talk about independence and how much companies claim that their boards really are independent, my observation through the years, having served on many boards and advised many others, is that the board culture in the United States is one of fraternity rather than one of skepticism. Would you agree with that? I think that boards are changing, not as quickly as we would all like, but they are getting more independent in terms of challenging and trying to get uh, corporations to understand the rate of change because that's the big threat to companies. And I think that that's the, the area where boards need to do better. Well, I, I agree with that. But if you put 15 or 20 people in the same room meeting sometimes twice a month, just by virtue of their coming face-to-face and having a dialogue, that environment of fraternity tends to trump the kind of skepticism that all of us would like to see characterize contemporary boards. I think that some of the ways you can mitigate that is, first of all, board size. When you get a large group, I think it is not as effective in its oversight and not as engaged. So you tend to get uh, uh, more of a hands-off if you have 15 people than if you have nine, uh, where they have more accountability. I think we're going to start to see trends emerge in this country where we'll start to see either term limits or more frequent refresh of boards. Uh, And I think that that's going to be healthy. Now, what do you think the big issues for boards will be in 2018? You know, I think there's two ways to answer that. There are the corporate governance watchdog issues of an institutional shareholder services, you know, and those will be issues like board committees, refreshment, diversity, uh, environmental, social, and governance issues. But I think the bigger and more important issue for boards is going to be the business of the business because the reason companies underperform isn't necessarily those governance things. They underperform because they're not staying vibrant and contemporary. So if you look at the big issues 
to me, it's understanding new business models like a marketplace, like an eBay, and how that applies to other businesses like an Uber or the sharing economy where you see Airbnb emerge and threaten Hilton's traditional model, the gig economy, uh, how you're going to employ, you know, machine learning and AI and how that's going to affect, you know, a, a traditional industry like insurance, for example, where you can teach a software robot in four days to perform better than your best underwriter and claim adjuster. So, you know, employing technology and new business models to keep companies competitive, I think, is the bigger threat to the well-being of the business than the sort of corporate hygiene of the governance issues. Federal Reserve took action against Wells Fargo in connection with the huge um, scandal involving fake accounts. Janet Yellen prevented them from growing any larger until they deal with their governance issues. Do you think this was warranted, and what changes would you ask for of this board? I think it's a failure of the board. Uh, first of all, it's too big. You have 15 people, which is too many, in my opinion. And secondly, you've had people of long tenure, and rotating four directors is not enough to change uh, you know, four minus 15, you've got 11 people who've got that same culture. Would you kick and them all out? No, but I'd change half of them. <clears throat> and I would also um, look at people of long tenure there. Because if you've been on a board for seven or eight years and you didn't understand that there was a tone at the top issue and you hadn't been working with some of the senior leaders, mentoring them and understanding the leadership team in terms of, you know, the bench strength for CEO succession, as a board member after seven or eight years, you ought to have relationships with some of the senior leadership team and you ought to have had some sense of the tone at the top. So it's a failure. Either uh, they were not engaged enough which I suspect is the situation, or they fail to see the issue. So either way, about half of them ought to change. I think even more than that, I think it, the negligence exhibited by that board was so severe that uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about changing the whole board. Uh, institutional memory would make up for whatever lapse of experience a new, totally refreshed board might might represent. The Weinstein board wants to sell the company, but New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's office filed a complaint uh, detailing a hostile work environment for women and accusing management and the board of being complicit. He said a deal would unjustly reward current management by keeping them in their positions. Do you agree with his action? That assumes that any buyer, HBO, Netflix, is going to keep current management. They, they may not. So, you know, I don't think that's the big issue. I think it clearly appears to be a hostile work environment. You had a contract with Weinstein that you know, allowed him to pay a fine for improper action. So clearly the board was complicit. Um, it may be slightly different as well that it's a private company with 42% owned by the Weinstein brothers it may complicate things a little bit. Now, Steve Wynn, on the other hand, he's gone. But what about the reputation of Wynn Resorts 
And what would you advise their board to do at this point? You know, it's amazing to me that Wynn Resorts, just like United Airlines, they didn't immediately have a good crisis management plan. They didn't immediately have a social media firm. Uh, a public relations firm, and a crisis management firm that they immediately worked with to try and rehabilitate the reputation and, and mitigate some of the brand impact. That said, they have to have a special committee, which they do, and that committee needs to complete their investigation to understand is this a Steve Wynn only you know issue or is there a corporate culture issue of hostility towards women in that environment? Now, the average age of directors for Wynn Resorts is 70 years old. Is, is that too old? And how would you want to see the board change that, if at all? You know, to me, uh, they don't have the right skill sets for who they are today. They don't have enough digital expertise. They don't have enough social media. They don't have enough hospitality people on the board. They don't have enough global background on the board, mobile enablement, gamification. You know, look at it compared to the Disney board. So they just don't have the right composition of backgrounds, uh, in my mind, to engage with their new customers who are millennials, to engage with their workforce who is majority millennial now. So I, I think that it's not the right composition more than an issue of age. You're absolutely right on, and you put it extremely well. Uh, would you counsel boards to uh, deal separately with the issue of sexual harassment, both resolving possible current issues and whether to move forward and what kind of crisis plan to consider? So I think that boards have to own the fact that the tone at the top, the company values are exemplified by the full leadership team. And there are already mechanisms. You have a hotline on the audit committee. You have the chief human resources officer, the general counsel, that issues can be escalated to. But what the board needs to do is own it rapidly and very quickly do an investigation. And a rapid investigation using the right resource. Use a background firm like a Kroll or an investigative management group or an FTI consulting and do a quick investigation and understand what has happened and is it an issue and should you then go to a broader investigation. The default that boards make, which is a mistake, is they go to their outside law firm who is typically a little bit slower and certainly more costly, and they're not expert at investigations. That's not what they do. They, they will subcontract that. So you should own it as a board, rapidly implement a review, and figure out is there an issue here or not, and then make a business decision. I think that makes a great deal of sense, and you do cite a pattern that we see over and over, which is really not to stretch the envelope very much. Now, 145 million Americans had their data breached at the Equifax issue. Did this rattle companies about cyber threats? Every company now has woken up in their boardroom that they have to understand the cyber threat. 
And there are some standard formats and templates, like the National Institute of Standards Bureau, NIST. They've got a framework with 22 items that you can give uh, red, yellow, green. How are we doing on these 22 items? But the board has to really have the business ownership for ensuring that the critical intellectual property, the crown jewels, are segregated. So if you're a pharmaceutical company and you're developing a new blockbuster drug, you know, you don't want your employees' information stolen, but it's a lot more critical for your shareholders that that new compound is, that that data is segregated. So you need to have some basic ownership at, at an intelligent level to do oversight with some kind of framework, have, you know, unscheduled penetration testing because, you know, when you schedule an attack, you know, it's not a good test. You've got to be sure that you've got training so that the employees don't, you know, respond to phishing. Uh, And you've got to make sure, in my mind, that you've got uh, a committee capacity to do the oversight. And I don't think it makes sense to keep overloading the audit committee. I think that this is a forward threat and you ought to have a tech committee for that and leave audit who's already pretty busy with the forensic backward-looking responsibilities. Betsy, BlackRock just updated its proxy voting guidelines, adding a stipulation that it expects companies to have at least two women directors on their boards. When it comes to more women on boards, are you in favor of quotas or targets? I'm not a lover of quotas. You know, aspirational targets are great, uh, and we can see that there has been progress. Uh, In 2017, we are now at 22% of boards uh, have... uh, 22% 22% of the seats are, are women. The U.K. target is 33% by 2020, so we're making progress. I think the important thing is that we're getting uh, the right people with the right quality and capability to really perform high-value oversight for the shareholders. What do you think of the New York City controller Scott Stringer's boardroom accountability project? Well, it's a quantitative matrix, uh, and I think that, you know, it's reasonable to try and capture the background of of different board members. But really what you're looking for is something qualitative, right? It's their business judgment, their ability to solve problems, to anticipate risks, to ask provocative questions that stress test management's thesis in a constructive way. It's reasonable as a starting point to have a quantitative matrix, but in the end, it's you're looking for qualitative business judgment. So I don't know that the, that his matrix is going to capture that. This is going to be the first year that the ratio of a CEO's total compensation as compared to that of a median employee must be disclosed. What do you consider the main purpose of this rule? And is it a rule that you're comfortable with? You know, I don't think this is going to be effective. I think that it's going to be more of a media event, and it may actually be a wedge that activists can use to say you have an imperial CEO who's getting paid too much. And the reason I say that is every company and industry is so different. You know, if you're Accenture and the bulk of your workforce is in India and you try and compare it with, uh, you know, 
another company, Costco, who hires, you know, pretty highly paid American employees, it's not going to be comparable. So you're going to have to stay with directly comparing against your peers. But if your peers happen to have uh, an, an overseas international labor pool that has a lower cost basis, then your your gap is going to look very different. And so I'm not sure what it's really going to give us as, you know, actionable insights. How would you counsel companies to structure CEO pay uh, as a means of encouraging long-term growth? That's what it should be about, is how are you delivering long-term growth that your enterprise is thriving and growing? So the ways to think about that from a long-term perspective would be market share gain, you know, number of new products or services introduced to prove that you're innovative so that the company doesn't become obsolete. Those are more important long-term measures than, you know, the normal annual uh, performance measures are top-line revenue and profit. And the longer-term measures really should look at, you know, gaining market share, innovation, uh, new products, and the things that would indicate that, that the company will be vibrant and really competitive in the future. You know, Betsy, I've always been leery of uh, promulgating specific rules for Board structure. Uh, Boards have such different missions in so many instances. And the question of whether the CEO should be chairman of the board is sometimes yes and sometimes no. I just wouldn't lock it into cement. Uh, I'd be interested on your take on that issue. I've thought about this quite a bit. And actually, I think there are two different cases that you can bucket this yes, separate it, or no, combine it. Uh, So today it's about 50% are combined. Um, And I think you can look at, for example, Nike, a high-performing company. The CEO uh, only held the CEO title for 10 years, and when the chairman who was in place uh, exited, Then, in 2016, they gave the combined chairmanship to that CEO. So when you have a CEO who's very successful, recognized, acclaimed, and been in place for a period of time, and it's time to bring in uh, a new chair, you know, it it would be uh, really uh, a blow to that CEO and, in some ways, you know, a big negative. Uh, You know, it's it's different than uh, a new CEO who you know, is new in the role and maybe hasn't as yet proven themselves. And so you do want more of a check and balance. So I think that it's situational and it needs to be viewed on a case-by-case basis. And I agree with you, having a one-size-fits-all rule I don't think is the best way to go forward. And I believe in the U.K. they have a one-size-fits-all, you know, you have a separate chairman. Betsy, how did CEO pay grow so exponentially? Uh, And I have to ask whether they're really worth it. My own experience in this area is the frequent excuse given by comp committees is that if uh, other CEOs are getting 30% more than the present CEO, we certainly can't let that continue. Uh, What do you think? of this issue and how would you address it as a corporate board member? First question of, are the CEOs worth it? It's not necessarily uh, that 
are they worth it? The issue is when you're paying a CEO who is not performing, like Jeff Immelt. You had 16 years of poor performance at GE with very high pay. You probably wouldn't be unhappy if you were a shareholder at Netflix, whatever that CEO is getting paid, because it's returning. So the issue is paying for non-performance. Um, on the second part of your question, um, you know, is it a good argument to say I have to pay the same because the comp consultant says everybody else is getting that amount of money? Uh, I don't think you necessarily have to pay an incoming CEO the same as the peers. They have to prove themselves and earn their way in. You have to be somewhere in the same zip code, depending on the caliper and experience of a, of a new CEO you're bringing in. So, uh, you know, I think you need to have mechanisms that reward for performance and that claw back if the performance isn't there. You don't want to pay for attendance. You want to pay for performance. You've written about the unusual pay deal that the Tesla board made with Elon Musk. Uh, tell us about this. Well, um, you know, philosophically, their compensation program is reasonable. They're paying a bonus based on top-line revenue and profit. So that's great. That's quantifiable, and that's in line with the shareholders. What I object to is the fact that he can earn 12% additional equity. So Elon Musk has 22% ownership, and he could get to 34%. That's just too much dilution. Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, you can look at Jeff Bezos at Amazon. He's got 17% ownership. Elon Musk, who's losing money, is, you know, at 22 already and aspiring to get to 34 you know, Steve Wynn, although, you know, he's now excoriated for his improper behavior, he built a pretty successful enterprise, and he has 12% equity. Uh, Salesforce.com, which is, a, you know, an iconic, innovative software company, Mark Benioff has 5%. I object to 22% moving up to 34 It's just too much dilution. Betsy, you've also said that the biggest threat these days is that your company loses relevance. What can a board do to keep a company relevant? Well, you know, you can actually do quite a bit. You can bring in outside speakers, uh, whether it's Gartner or the Conference Board or McKinsey, Accenture, BCG, Bain, bring in speakers who have an outside-in view of your industry and who are the competitive interlopers and new trends. And boards typically now, most public boards, do an annual three-day strategy off-site, a really deep dive once a year. And when you do that, you should have that, in my mind, as part of a learning trip. Uh, on my boards, we've gone to Silicon Valley. Uh, we've gone to China, to Hangzhou and Shenzhen. So I think that bringing in Outside perspectives at a working board lunch or board dinner is valuable. Uh, bringing in even your, your biggest shareholders to tell you what they think and how you can do different and better in their mind. So I think that you can stay contemporary by actively bringing in external perspectives. Do you think that outside consultants uh, should be brought in to help source new board members? Or do you think the yeah. board itself should uh, retain that responsibility? 
Well, that's your earlier point on, you know, is it a fraternity? Is it too close to club? Um, you know, I think it's perfectly reasonable that the governance committee and board colleagues can suggest people, but the process really ought to be run by a professional search consultant who takes the emotion out uh, and, you know, really helps you quantify what you can measure quantifiable and the qualitative attributes uh, so that you're, you're getting a broad enough pool. Because otherwise, if it's just a referral from your colleagues, you're picking from a pool of one or two. You're not picking from the global pool. Now, you'd like to see a sunset clause for directors. What kind of clause would this be? How would it be structured? What's the right number of years or age? Well, you know, I do think the boards get stale because of how fast everything is changing. You know, the, the board members who were perfect for a retail board, you know, 15 years ago came from Sears and Kmart and Circuit City. Those companies are dead. That's not the perspective you want on a retail board today. So I do think just like management on their leadership team, they forward hire for the next five-year leg of the journey, and they outgrow some of the people on their leadership team. I think you outgrow some of the people on your board. And I also think you, pour, you pretty much have pulled out all their good ideas, uh, you know, 80% of their great ideas after eight or nine or 10 or 12 years on the outside. There's not that many new things. And, you know, people don't always stay contemporary. So I do think having a refresh and uh, a sunset clause, I think in the U.K. it's 10 years, I think is something to really be considered. And I think that 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 would be a positive. And you would pick 10 years? I think 10 is good at this rate of change, yes. She's a three-time CEO, serial entrepreneur, and founder of Baja Corporation. She's also a corporate governance expert, having served on 27 boards. She's collected her candid and practical advice for those who serve on the boards into a book called Behind Boardroom Doors, Lessons of a Corporate Director. Betsy Atkins, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. 